in sunny Steepleville, and what a day it is. It just doesn't get any better than this. I'm Bob Cobb, joined by my colleague, Taffy Babbler, and you're looking at beautiful aerial shots provided by Airship Worship, now broadcasting in HD. And you love to see the players getting focused, getting their mind right, getting in the proverbial zone. And here are the starting lineups brought to you today by Stump and Sons Altars, keeping knees at ease since 1933. Dan Verbosky, pastor, the Bamford Theological Seminary. Jerry Woodwind, worship, Eastern Southwest Central School of Divinity. Frank Banter, associate assistant to the intern of the executive minister of community ministry, GED. Jerry, how is the injury? Uh, you know, it's, it's fine. There's some soreness. Uh, X-rays were negative, but I should be fine as long as I stay away from B-flat. So. Are you worried about re-injuring it? Um, you know, as long as I, I play hard and, and play at my pace, uh, I think I should be fine. Have you ever bet on attendance? What? Have you ever taken anabolic steroids? No. Have you ever lip-synced worship? <laughs> Listen, we're about to get started here. And here's the kickoff. And it's a slow play. Wow, that's big. You're the home team. You want to have a surprise or two up your sleeve. What I call mix it up ability. It sounds like the new Darlene Zek or or Zeek or Seku. Zeesh. Yeah, is it Zeechi maybe? Uh, Darlene's a uh, Let's go to our sideline reporter, Billy Sturpot. This uh, crowd seems a little bit lethargic, but uh, this town is known for late crowds. So maybe by halftime, they'll be a little more into it. It looks like Johnny Weems is headed for an early exit. Chiefs fan. They play at 11. Oh, my. Look at this. A huge error. Enormous. You're the media team. You're leading the league in fumbles. You can't let this happen. You can't let this happen. Terrible timing, especially on a new song. Look at this crowd. It's bedlam. Pandemonious. Look at Maggie Jensen, veteran overloud singer. She hasn't missed a word. What a performance. One of the greats, Bob. One of the greats. Cool idea. Or I've been looking at the biblical idea of worship in my own life lately. What it means to worship and uh, specifically, uh, I wanted to preach on that this week, just for this week. Uh, really, there are two external man-made problems when it comes to this phenomenon known as Sunday morning worship through song, musical worship. Um, one was illustrated through that video, and that is that we can tend to get caught up in performance, right? Uh, sometimes it's our own performance, how we sing. How we're doing? Octave high, octave low. I usually grade out pretty badly with my own performance in worship. Uh, but it's usually the performance we're concerned about is the pastor, the worship band, and of course the tech geeks up in the uh, audiovisual area, which of course we have replaced with tech cool guys, uh, thankfully, in our, in our uh, church. So they're really cool dudes. Um, so get to know them. But our questions have to do with things like, man, how did it sound? You know, was it good? Was it bad? You know, was it was the, the lead singer, was he too loud? Or did he sound like an early 1980s Ramones concert that I once attended? Right, where, I, oh, let's go. Anyone remember that? No? Okay. So, what is worship like? What is the performance? These are the kind of questions we have. The persons that uh, typically are concerned about these questions are actually, um, have, I think, good intentions. They're usually con- we're concerned about 
other folks, possibly newcomers or uh, new believers, people who have recently trusted their life to Christ, or people who don't know Jesus at all. So when complaining, we usually complain on behalf of others, right? The irony is that I've found that others rarely complain. These others rarely complain. Um, in college, I remember bringing a friend to church. Uh, this is a guy who had not yet trusted his life to Jesus, but he was interested in God. And I remember giving him a disclaimer on the way. Have you ever done this, going to a church before? And you kind of start talking maybe about the, the, the pastor, the preacher. He's kind of weird. He's kind of he's funky. He looks strange. In other words, it's probably me. You know, or you say something about the music. And I did with him. I said, you know, just you know, man, the music's a little slow. You know, it's kind of slow. I'm pretty sure um, the organist, um, she's you know, lost most of her, her mind at this point. You know, those sorts of things. I gave all these disclaimers. And uh, I told him it might be kind of weird. Well, on top of this, we had technical difficulties during the sermon, all right, and during the, during the uh, worship service, which made it doubly frustrating. And um, I was disappointed. And he could see it. Afterwards, I asked him, you know, what did you think? What did you uh, think about the service? He said, so, you know, that's the sermon gave me a lot to think about. So, what did you think about the music, you know, and the, the singing? He said, yeah, I could tell that kind of bothered you. I said, yeah, it did. Um, you know, honestly, man, it was really cool. It was really awesome. He said, uh, <laughs> when else do adults, do grown people sing together, he said. And honestly, when else do grown people sing together outside of being drunk at a karaoke bar? <laughs> I just thought it was pretty funny. He said, and believe me, uh, that's far worse than the church, um, that, that sound. And it stuck, struck me that, you know, he's right. When else people get together and sing, you know? And nothing else. That is an awesome blessing uh, to one another and to the church. And we get so focused on, I think, this is the time to worship. This is the chance in this place, you know, for others to hear that I fear we might miss out on what the Bible actually says about worship. So we're going to look at that this morning. I don't want anything fancy this morning, other than we're just going to look at what the Bible has to say about worship. Okay? And I think you'll find that while we get caught up in, in externals like performance or the kinds of worship, God's Word is concerned about the essence of worship. The essence of worship. So let's look at this this morning. What does the Bible have to say about worship? And as a get into it, I want to talk first of all about an old word for worship. Anyone like words? Yeah, big fan? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Two of you like words. Um, that's that's going to hurt for the sermon. Um, who knows what, uh, what language the Old Testament is written in? You want to know what language the Old Testament is written in? A little, little quiz for you here. Raise your hand if you know. Thank you. Yes. Hebrew. Very good. Very good. Well, there's actually another common language that the Old Testament was written in, even back in the day, back in Jesus' time. Um, anyone know what that might have been? It was translated into this? Dude, I'm going to give you the bouquet of flowers later. Yeah. It was written in, there was Aramaic. Aramaic. So there was some of it was Aramaic, but, but actually the Hebrew was translated into something else. Anyone know? This is a tough one. Greek. Someone said over there, Greek. Yes, the New Testament's known for Greek. But the Old Testament was translated into Greek as well. Because why? 
Jesus, his apostles, his disciples, they live in a Greco-Roman world. And so while some of them read Hebrew, almost all of them read, read Greek. And so it was translated into Greek. And it's called the Septuagint. So oftentimes when you see the New Testament quote the Old Testament, it's often quoting the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. It would have been used by Christ and his, his apostles along with Hebrew. Fun fact there. If you're ever at a party, you can use that one. It'll be good, good fun. Well, the Greek word that captured the idea of Old Testament worship is this word proskuneo. Proskuneo. And this word implied a physical falling down before visible majesty. That's very important. A physical fall. So, if I was younger, I'd just throw myself down. A physical falling down for a visible majesty. It implied using your body, the visible God, proskuneo. That really hurt my knees. It occurred, it occurred during the time when people used to worship at a tabernacle and then later in a temple. Uh, God's people, the Israelites. All right, because they would go to this physical place, physically do rites and, and sacrifices before a visible God. That God was visible behind this giant sheet, this giant veil, okay, curtain. This word, so it's time, place, physical. That's important to remember. First Kineo, time, place, physical. So, this word occurred 26 times in the Gospels. So we saw it used in the Old Testament, but it occurs, First Cuneo, 26 times in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It occurs 21 times in Revelation, but only once in between. Anyone know why? Anyone know why it would only be used once in between the Gospel at the beginning of the New Testament, Revelation at the end? Anybody want to guess? Okay, Jesus was present, right? Exactly. And by the way, this, this idea blew my mind. I, I, I owe this to, to another pastor who showed this to me, but there was no visible majesty to bow down to, right? The Son of God was visible on earth during the Gospels, right? The Son of God, the majesty before us. And he will be visible again when faith gives way to sight, when Jesus comes again to establish the new heavens and the new earth, which Revelation describes, and will once again be with Jesus for eternal life. So, visible in the Gospels, faith gives way to sight, visible in Revelation, but in between, we have something different. So, proskuneo only occurs once. The main word used for worship between the first and second coming of Christ does not have to do with a visible or physical place nor is it event-oriented. Okay? Jesus hints at this reality about worship in John chapter 4. You may know this, you may not. I don't know if you've heard the story. Jesus talking to this woman by a well in uh, Samaria. And he says to this woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Look at that. The hour is coming where neither on this mountain, it's talking about here in, in, in Samaria, 
nor in Jerusalem, the two main places for worship at this time. People won't worship in a place, but they do still right now. And because they still also worship a visible majesty because Jesus, the Son of God, is still with them. But the time is coming where people will worship in spirit and in truth. Hope you're tracking with me. Worship is different because there's no temple. There's no physical animal sacrifices to make anymore like the Old Testament. There's no visible Jesus. Now you may have heard that worship is more than just singing. Our entire lives should be worshiping, praising, glorifying the Lord. Well, this is why. This is why. We're now called to walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus is not physically here with us. We can't see him here on earth. He'll be here. He'll come again. So in the meantime, we walk by faith. And by faith, we worship in spirit. We can worship God at all times. So this is what worship looks like between the first and second coming of Christ. It is a non-place, anytime spiritual experience. Which is awesome. Non-place, anytime spiritual experience. Paul goes out of his way to make this clear. In fact, the second most used word for worship in the New Testament, in each case where it is used by Paul and others, they go out of their way to say it's spiritual. Alright, so for instance, uh, Romans 12.1, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The New Testament authors go out of their way to make sure it's worship, but it is a spiritual thing. It is not event-oriented, place-oriented, physical-oriented. So Paul in the New Testament mentions these kinds of things as act of worship. Look, look at this list. Praise and thanks. Hebrews 13, 15. Good works in everyday life. Hebrews 13, 16. New followers of Christ, new followers of Jesus, are an acceptable offering to the Lord. Romans 15, 16. Money. Giving of our, our tithes and offerings. Uh, Paul talks about it. Money that churches sent to him. 2 Corinthians 9, 12 and 13. Paul's own death for Jesus was an offering, was an act of, prayer, of worship. 2 Timothy 4, 6. These are the kinds of things because what happens is worship is a spiritual experience happening in our heart and then translated into everyday life. Being done anywhere, anytime. Because it's happening in your heart. The idea is you can worship through all kinds of things, through giving. You're seeing some, a new believer come to Christ. Right? Through, you know, good works done to other people. Acts of worship. So, what does this have to do with Sunday morning worship? Well, the implication of John 4, 21-23, is freedom. Right? Freedom. But do we really want freedom to worship anywhere, anytime? That's a question I really wrestled with this week in my own life. Do I really want that freedom? I, I had a hard time lately preparing my heart and focusing during worship, during Sunday morning worship. I've just noticed I've had a hard time. And I'm often thinking about other things, right? Uh, if you're like me, I, I often, you know, struggle with thinking, you know, Distractions, daydreaming, going off in my own mind kind of thing. 
But you ever notice that distractions and daydreams can almost invariably be traced back to us, to me, right? So even the, the strangest bunny trails we go down or rabbit trails all, always can be traced back to me. Thinking about myself, worrying about myself. And not, not a malicious, oh God, I'm going to think about me during worship, but a, a, just a habitual self-centeredness. My life's kind of about me, so I'm going to think about me. Does that make sense? So, so during the week, I am free to worship Jesus anytime and any place. And yet inwardly, because of sin, I often prefer Old Testament worship. I'll explain what I mean here. Inwardly, because of sin, I often prefer Old Testament worship. Go to the temple, perform my external rites, you know, and, and, and religious practices, you know, get it done, have my sin atoned for, go home. Why would I often prefer that? Well, because having checked worship off my list, I can get on with my life. Having come, having worshipped, I can get on with my life. But then I can come back again on Sunday morning and worship again, fill up my cup. I often come to, to worship on Sunday mornings. I often come to worship through song not having adequately worshipped during the week. I've been given this gift of faith through Jesus to worship him whenever and wherever, but I've taken it for granted. I've kicked it to the curb. I think the greatest obstacle to a good performance for Sunday morning worship is our own worship performance during the week. Think about that. And, and, and let it sting. Let it sting there for a few minutes. I'll come back to it, give you some medicine, make it feel better. But it should sting. Because I know I found myself complaining about this and that and other things. But I want to talk first about the second man-made problem. External man-made problem when it comes to this idea of Sunday morning worship or music worship through song. And it's illustrated in church history. I think this is pretty cool, actually, uh, so I want to share it with you. Up until the 13th century, Christians were expected to stand during the entire worship service. All right? Uh, I'm thinking about doing that next week, just an experiment. So uh, just, just, you know, do, do some calisthenics this week. But they were expected to stand until pews were introduced in the 13th century. All right? But it wasn't in the 14th century, they caught on a little more. In the 15th century, they were kind of a permanent fixture. Why did it take so long? Why did it take so long for pews to get introduced? Well, because people were antsy. They were antsy about, you know, well, man, pews, that's, uh, that's kind of weird. I've got, I've got major theological questions about sitting. Like, is there a sitting? But, but back then, they, they did. And it was legitimate. Another one um, I looked at, the 14th century was the introduction of the organ. You know, your favorite kind of worship music. Organ music. Many churches rejected it, saying it was an instrument of the devil uh, because it was also used in nearby pubs to accompany the uh, ancient version of 99 bottles of beer on the wall. And they're singing, dun, 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 dun. they'd sing it, and they sing their little pub songs, etc., and so it must be of the devil. Organs. Organs. <laughs> the same thing we associate today as being uh, often ancient and uh, kind of high, holy um, 
instrument for worship. One other interesting note, um, the movie camera, which is often used to assist in worship, was invented by a Christian Thomas Edison. He actually tried, I didn't know this until recently, he tried to give the patent to the, of the movie camera to the church. But the church rejected it. I know, right? That would have been a sweet fundraising opportunity. Imagine, like, MGM. Come on, we want to build four more churches. There are ten more churches. It's so sweet. Ugh, kind of frustrated me when I heard that. But people, they didn't want to use it. What's this newfangled way of talking about Jesus and worshiping God through a movie camera? And we laugh, but, but some of us get so used to, uh, I get so caught up in the forms of worship, certain forms of worship that we like, that we end up missing out. Like the scoffers I mentioned, you know? No organ, no pews, no movie camera, right? And it goes both ways, right? We dismiss the old stuff as well. So it's like new stuff, so it's like old stuff. Some like contemporary music that's kind of mellow, some of us like the, uh, you know, hardcore, you know, bar chords, jamming out worship. And some of us uh, like the hymns, you know. The list goes on. But the New Testament does not focus on these things, guys. It focuses on the essence, not the form. We don't get much about the form in the New Testament. So let's talk about the essence. The essence of worship. First of all, the essence is something's core, right? It's It's nature. And the form is the way it's expressed. I'll give you an example. We're talking about music. Music is musical notes arranged harmoniously to produce a coherent sound. Right? That's a basic enough definition. Forms of music include country, hip-hop, easy listening. For the kids out there, uh, the ever-popular emo. And of course, there's Elton John. Uh, I don't know what Elton John is in terms of a form. So, um, these are some of them. And I mean, his mo- I mean his mode of worship, not anything else. Stop it. I really did. So, there's these essence of music and the forms of worship, of music. What is the essence of New Testament worship? Uh, a pastor I really like and respect has influenced me greatly in this area of music. His name is John Piper. I agree with him when he says, worship is prizing or cherishing Jesus is gain. Prizing, estimating, lifting up Jesus Christ as gain. So we're going to talk about that. Last week I mentioned, if you were here, that if you ever read in the Bible, passages, books, what have you, and you see significant verbs or significant nouns repeated a few times, in one book or one passage. Take note. That's not an accident. The author's trying to tell you something here. This is an important theme. It happens in this book called Philippians, Paul's letter to a church in Philippi. And the words he repeats very frequently there are count, loss, and gain. Count, loss, gain. Uh, accountants, any accountants here today? I know there are. I feel like half of our church is accountants. Come on, raise your hand proudly. That is, we love you guys. Come on. This is your book. Philippians. Man, I mean, count, loss, gain. In fact, we should use Philippians to appeal to the math-minded left brain. Um, I think there's a, a present the gospel to accountants possibility here in Philippians, actually. There's potential right here. We should use it. But Philippians, count, loss, gain. 
We're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you. Philippians 1, 21 through 24. Paul says, church in Philippi, Philippians 1, 21 through 24. For to me, to live is Christ. Don't miss this part. To live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account for you. It's going to be, in other words, it's going to help the church if I stick around. If worship is non-event, is a non-event, it's non-place oriented, and that it happens in our hearts, it's translated into everyday lives, Paul shares what that life is. What the Christian life is. The life is Christ. It is Christ. All-encompassing. Death is even better because it's Jesus fully realized in all his glory. So that's why Paul is saying to live is Christ, to die, oh, that is gain. And he can even say in this, this passage, it is far better to depart and be with Christ. Against all the reasons and rationalizing of the world, Paul can say that death is gain. I mean, that, that's a radical statement. People in our world would say, Paul, what are, you, are you suicidal? No. He just loves Jesus. See, in this book, Paul, Paul actually works through a couple of his own life issues in the book of Philippians. One, his future life. And two, his past life. We'll start with the first. Paul endured a lot to make sure people heard about the good news and would grow in the good news. Shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonments, you name it, Paul went through it. In fact, um, uh, you, kn- you know why we can be certain that dinosaurs didn't exist in the first century A.D.? Because Paul didn't encounter one. And because I'm telling you, if there were, if they existed, Paul would have encountered them. Because he encountered everything else. He would have gotten, like, slashed by a velociraptor. The guy went through everything you could possibly imagine in terms of terror, suffering, anything you could think of. And so he asks, basically he's asking this question, should I start praying? Should I start hoping for being with Jesus in eternal life? Or should I just start getting my mind oriented towards staying with you guys to help you? Paul also had an amazing life before becoming a Christian. He was at the top of his class. He uh, learned under this dude named Gamaliel, which... Basically meant he graduated summa cum laude from Harvard slash Oxford. Okay, you can just pick which one you want. All right. He was the up-and-coming Pharisee, the up-and-coming guy in his religious group. All right. He had a following. People, his own people praised him, honored him, loved him. But when he encountered Jesus and trusted his life to him, his own people scorned him, despised him, and ridiculed him. So essentially, Paul also poses the question, and he does this, we're going to look at this first, these verses. Given my past, 
Given my great past in the world's eyes, did I gain or lose by knowing Jesus? Did I gain or did I lose by knowing Jesus? Now, are we, are we shocked that Paul might ask that question? I think it's a question we ask a lot of ourselves. If you know Jesus, you look back in your life, did I really gain by knowing Jesus? There are times when we think, man, I've got I to rethink this. So Paul works through that question himself. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Turn there if you would. Paul says this. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I think I know why Paul uses this language of, you know, count, gain, loss. Because Paul himself was going in and out of sickness while in prison while writing Philippians. And he knew that in the midst of suffering and hardship, you can't just get by on emotional fuel to prize or to cherish Christ. That doesn't always work. Man, I'm just motivated to serve Jesus this morning. It's a bright morning. The bluebird's on my shoulder. You know, and let's, let's praise him. You can't just get by on that sometimes. Sometimes you have to fight to remind yourself of the hard, calculated truth of who Jesus is. So you can count him as gain in your life. When you come to worship God through song, you are bringing out the scales you're bringing out the scales and you're demonstrating what you're counting as loss and what you're counting as gain in your life. And my hope that something like this would be your final count, your final tally. Although there are worries, there are needs, there are people, there are responsibilities in my life, as well as feel-good moments from my past, I consider them rubbish compared to gaining Jesus. And worship through song is simply an opportunity to put all else aside, to prize, to cherish Christ. Does that make sense? So what should musical worship look like for us then as we practice it in a church setting? Well, prizing Christ should lead us closer to Him. A kind of intimacy. And when you get that the Holy Spirit gives us the freedom to express that intimacy, that closeness in a, in a variety of ways. And so worship can be, through song, can be people sitting or standing quietly, considering the words on the screen, or waiting upon the Holy Spirit to speak to them. It can be arms lifted up to the Lord, palms ready to receive what our gracious Father has to give them. Worship can be people singing at the top of their lungs, jump, jumping, dancing. It can be people searching through, thumbing through their Bible. Just reading God's Word as they sing. Or as God speaks to them by faith. It can be two or three people in the back hallway pray, praying together. Or coming up afterwards to receive prayer. Man, that is worship. That is legitimate ways to express a cherishing, a prizing Christ. And man, I hope we can see that in our church. I think we can seen it here before, even in the first couple months I've been here. But let me ask, let me just stop on this here. If you feel guilty when it comes to worship, because you focused on the externals, 
Maybe you focus too much on the performance, you know, or the form of worship. Or maybe you've treated Old, New Testament worship like Old Testament worship, right? Come to do your external act of worship. Check it off the list. Go home. Maybe you feel a little bit guilty because you've done the math in your life. And to be honest, your life comes out as a bigger gain than Christ. If you feel a little guilty, I'm glad. And not just because I do too. Because I'm, you know, misery loves company, right? I'm glad because God is convicting us of sin and these kinds of things. Even though you may feel like you've thrown your margins away, you've thrown away your gain, God has not only forgiven that grave error through Christ, but he's credited to us and given to us a much greater credit. He's given us a bigger margin. I didn't get to finish what Paul says in Philippians 3, so I'm going to do this now. I'm going to share that with you now. Philippians 3.9, he just said, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, in other words, from being perfect, from following the law perfectly, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All Jesus did on earth, all Jesus did right here on earth, he credits to your account to make you right with God if we would just but trust him. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we're just focusing on a small area of, the Christian, uh, of Christian life. There's a big area through worship, actually. Or in many ways we're talking about the biggest area, but then translated into how we do it on Sunday morning. It's a small, maybe a, just a, a sliver of time. But Lord, I confess that I've complained. I have treated this like Old Testament worship. I come, I check it off, I go home, do my thing. Or I don't cherish you as gain. I don't prize you as my greatest gain. Lord, I'm thankful that through Jesus we have forgiveness. We've been given a righteousness. We've been, though we've thrown away our greatest gain, we get a bigger gain through Jesus' credit that he achieved through us on the cross. And we might worship you fully. That's so awesome, Lord. Jesus, if we're having a hard time this morning, if we're struggling to worship you, or maybe we're just distracted, we have a lot of cares and anxieties that weren't addressed even during the sermon, God, I pray that we get to the core of worship, the essence. May we turn our eyes upon you, Jesus. Look full in your wonderful face so that the things of the world, the rubbish, would grow strangely dim and light your glory and grace. Amen.